Good morning. Well, it's a joy to be at Compass. I think this is my seventh visit. I have a theory. I think uh, Mike has given me seven opportunities to get it right, so I'm going to try and do that this morning. But it's just a joy to be here. Love your pastor. Uh, love his heart, his friendship, uh, his pen, his commitment to the gospel. Looking forward to read his new book on heaven and hell. Uh, certainly appreciate the testimony that you have as a body of believers here in Lisa Viejo. Uh, you're certainly a ministry that we pray for, think about, and greatly respect. I'm excited to see the footprint that you have that's expanding through your church plants all across the country, and that's exciting. Pray for Pastor Ben as he makes his way up the Boise. Uh, may he prosper and no good success as he meditates on God's Word. So it's a a joy to be back. I, I like the story of the, the lady who uh, filed a missing persons report on her husband. And the police came and asked for a description that might help them find him. And she said, well, he's tall. Uh, he's got blonde, wavy hair. He's got, he's, he's got the, the physique of, of, of a bodybuilder. Uh, and, and uh, you know, my, my kids love him. Uh, and, and the neighbors uh, appreciate him. And so uh, the police said, that's helpful. And um, they left. And her girlfriend, who was in the house at the time, said, hold on a minute. That, that's not your husband. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's short. He's fat. He's bald. And your kids can't stand him. And the neighbors hate him. She said, sure, but who wants him back? <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I'm back. And, and I, I do believe that. Uh, you want me back, and that's, that's humbling. It's a joy. Uh, June and I love coming down. The staff here are the best in terms of taking care of us, and so thank you for the invitation to be back. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and um, I want to preach on Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's our text. And so I want to speak this morning on the subject, choose happiness. I'm going to advocate that, you know, with some qualification, that you're as happy this morning as you have made your mind up to be. You're as happy this morning as you've made your mind up to be, generally speaking. Because God calls you and commands you to rejoice in the Lord. And that's a choice you've got to make. Love uh, the comment of J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, as he looked over the life of the great evangelist George Whitfield. He said of Whitfield that Mr. Whitfield was a singularly happy and cheerful spirit. That's a beautiful description of a man's life. Cheerfully and happily given to a life and an expression of joy in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, to make his case, he quoted a venerable lady from New York who, who said after Whitfield's death that Mr. Whitfield was so cheerful that he tempted me to be a Christian. Do you tempt anybody to be a Christian? because your life is marked by contagious joy? It ought to be, because I would argue that joy is one of the distinguishing marks of a true Christian. What about Romans 14, 17? That the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, 
but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The psalmist says, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Paul tells the Galatians that one of the fruits of the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is joy. Love and joy and peace are some of the fruits of a life rooted in Jesus Christ. In fact, um, we were just back in Scotland visiting my wife's family, and uh, I was reminded that my father-in-law, Gordon, got saved in an engineering company. He was a, a turner or a, worked on a lathe, and uh, you know he was uh, not known to be particularly religious. He gambled, he played cards, he drank, he partied, he danced. Uh, you know, he had no reputation of being a believer. He had, was personally witnessed to by another Christian in the company. And you know what? In, the, in his home, one evening, he, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And the word got out around the factory that Gordon had got saved. And Gordon tells me, here's how many of his workmates described that conversion. Here's what the, the, the whispering uh, communicated throughout the factory. Gordon has become a hallelujah. Isn't that a wonderful description of a Christian? When you and I come to Christ, you, you want it to be that automatic reflex of an unsaved friend. Hey, he's become a hallelujah. Because you see, coming to Christ is a joyful experience. Living for Christ is a joyful experience. Merle Unger said this, and, and he said it well. Joy is as natural and spontaneous to a healthy Christian as song is to a bird, as play is to a child, and as beauty is to a rose. May that be true of us. And so let's come and look at this text that will urge us and command us to indeed find our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just qualify our, our thinking when it comes to joy. I'm not thinking about a blind optimism. I'm not speaking about a happiness that kind of ignores the harsh realities of life. A kind of case, sarah, sarah, you know, philosophy of living. That's not where we're talking about when we talk about Christian happiness or Christian joy. It's much more deep than that, solid than that, and realistic than that. And we're not talking about a superficial happiness either. A kind of giddiness. A kind of just being up on life kind of perspective. We're not talking about having a, a, a you know, pa pa pasting or plastering a, a, a plastic smile on your face 24 hours a day. You, you don't need to, to look like the Joker in the Batman movies, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a, a blind optimism. We're not talking about a superficial happiness. We're talking about a solid joy, a joy that exists in the midst of sadness, a joy that's, that's on the inside working itself out. A joy that's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because He is our Savior, our friend, our advocate, our protector, our Lord. A joy is not so much a spontaneous emotion as it is a response formed in those who understand God's love, Christ's work on behalf of the sinner, and the Spirit's indwelling presence and peace. Joy is an appropriate response to God's unfolding plan of redemption in our lives. It's as natural as song to a bird, play to a child, beauty to a rose. It's an outcome of knowing Jesus. Amen? So let's look at the text. 
Let me just put it in its context quickly. Um, a text out of context is a pretext for misunderstanding. Now, it would be easy to come and look at this text and kind of just conclude that Paul's in a bit of a rush to finish. If you look at verses 2 through 9, there's kind of a, a list of imperatives or commands or things to do. It's like Paul's just running out of time, running out of ink. So, hey, you need to do this, do this, do this, do this. And you've got this list. Be one with each other. Be joyful. Be hopeful. The Lord is at hand. Be reasonable and gracious in your response to those who are less gracious. Don't be anxious. Be prayerful. Be thankful. Be thoughtful. Bring all your thinking to bear upon things which are lovely and good and excellent. They'll produce the peace of God. It's almost like he's a, a parent getting the last word in as the freshman leaves for college, you know? Stay in touch, you know, balance your checkbook, watch your company, drop us a text, change your underwear, on and on it goes, okay? It's kind of that to-do list, but it's more than that. It would be easy to conclude that all you've got here in these verses is kind of a, a rag bag of loosely related injunctions, but that's not true for two reasons. Number one, all of these themes, or a majority of these themes have already been mentioned earlier in the book. He's talked about prayer. He's talked about our citizenship in heaven and Jesus' return. And he's talked about joy. 19 times Paul picks up the theme of joy. Chapter 4, verse 1, he calls the Philippians his joy. Chapter 1, verse 4, he prays for them with joy. Chapter 4, verse 10, he rejoices in their generosity towards him during his imprisonment because Paul writes this letter from his cell or his room in Rome. It's during his first imprisonment, and it's about AD 61, and they have sent Epaphroditus to meet his needs, and they've sent the kind of care package, if, you would, if, if we may put it like that. He asked them to unite, be one, in Jesus Christ, that his joy may be full, chapter 2, verse 2. He expects to be released for their joy and progress, chapter 1, verse 25. And then here in the verse we're looking at, he calls them to live joyfully. Joy rings like a bell throughout this letter. So don't come to the end of it and think that Paul's just rattling off a disconnected list of things to do. He's kind of doubling down on stuff he's already underlined as important. Number two, back in chapter two, verses 12 to 13, he urges them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in them to do his good will and pleasure. So they are to respond, they are to respond to God's work in them by working out their salvation. They're to develop their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I would suggest to you that what you've got in this list of imperatives here is a way by which you and I can work out our salvation. You want to work out your salvation? You want to be a better Christian? Then work at being one with other Christians. Work at your joy. Work at your graciousness and reasonableness. Work at your prayer life. Work at giving God greater thanks. Work at controlling your thoughts and bringing them into captivity to Jesus and meditating on things that produce the peace of God. 
So let's come and look at one of these ways in which you and I can work out our salvation. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, there's three things here. If you want to take notes, you've got it in your insert. I'm going to give you the headings up front. The command, number one, the command. Number two, the connection. Number three, the constancy. I'll repeat that for you again. The command, the connection, the constancy. Let's look at the command. You need to know that this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, is in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. This isn't an option. This is an obligation. This ought to be true of every born-again, Bible-believing Christian. They ought to be joyful. They ought to be cheerful. They ought to tempt people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They ought to be a walking hallelujah. That's what we're commanded to be. This comes with fire and this comes with force. In fact, you'll see this and not only is that first phrase an imperative, you'll see that Paul reiterates, doubles down. Hey, you are to rejoice in the Lord. I'm saying it again, rejoice. You're not getting off the hook. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Do you agree to do this? Be joyful. This isn't good advice. This is gospel injunctions. This is an imperative in our life. This is what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. Now, let's be honest. The first time I read that, the first time I understood that this is an imperative, this is a command, I kind of went, you can't command joy. It's spontaneous. It's, it's, it's emotional. It, 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 you know, to command it is to kind of rob it, is it not, of its kind of value and quality. It's just something not right about the idea of kind of forced joy or commanded joy. Just something that happens. In fact, some people are given to it by disposition more than others. That's the way the argument goes, but it's not true. Let me quote this at length. John Sartell a few years back in the Ligonier Magazine Table Talk said this, many think that joy is like the flu. It's something you catch. It just happens. Others opine that joy is in your genes. It's an innate character trait in some people that automatically emerges from their DNA. Yet all through Scripture, God commands joy. Joy is the second element listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the first Is love a virus that is caught? Is love automatic? No, God commands us as Christians to love even in the most difficult situations. He doesn't put it there, but right, love your enemies. (laughs) That doesn't come naturally. That's not spontaneous. That's antithetical to your nature. But love is commanded. And so is joy. That's his argument. So I'll pick it up. No, God commands us as Christians to love even in the most difficult situations. Husbands and wives are commanded to love each other because authentic love is not an involuntary action. Just so we are commanded to rejoice. It's a decision, a choice. Every day we will choose between joy or cynicism, joy or despair, joy or desolation, joy or worry, joy or complaining. It's true, folks. When you, you know, wheel around and your legs come to the side of the bed 
The alarm clock's just gone off. You're rubbing the sleep from your eyes. You, at that point, you've got to begin to make choices. How are you going to approach the day? What attitude are you going to have? What mindset are you going to take into the day? And the Bible says you've got to choose joy. You've got to work at your joy because you have a choice between joy and cynicism or despair, desolation, or worry. That's Paul's point here. Joy is a decision. I know I can qualify the statement, but run with me. You are on most days about as happy as you have decided to be because joy is a choice. It's not a spontaneous emotion. It's, it's a decision to find your joy in Jesus Christ, despite your circumstances, despite your health report, despite your mood, despite the clatter and clamor of life. You're choosing to force your focus on Jesus, to treasure him in a tough manner. I'm going to give you some examples of this to make my case. Write down these verses. I'll read them for you. First of all, Psalm 118, verse 24. When you get to your discussion questions later this week, think about these verses. You know the verse. David says, this is the day the Lord has made. What does he say next? I will. That's an act of volition. That's not emotion. That's not something spontaneous. He's not feeling his way to joy. This is the day the Lord has made. That's theological reflection. That's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. That's an acknowledgement that God is the giver of life. That's an acknowledgement that all my days are written down in his book, Psalm 139. I recognize that. I'm going to focus there. I'm going to let that speak into my life. I'm going to let that define my mood. I'm going to let that speak into my circumstances. I will then rejoice. That's volition. That's a choice. David's making a deliberate decision. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Hold on a minute, David. You don't know what this day's going to bring. Before the end of it, it could be bad. Doesn't matter. I will rejoice and be glad in it. What about Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 18? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive field, the, 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 the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's not emotion. It's nothing spontaneous. He is driving himself to a place where he is going to deliberately rejoice in the Lord. It's challenging, folks, isn't it? We are about as happy as we make our minds up to be. One other, our text, Philippians 1, verse 12 to 18, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And he goes on to talk about that brothers have, have acted boldly in the light of Paul's suffering. And then he goes on to say something sadly, that in the middle of this, some brothers are preaching Christ out of self-ambition. Paul is away. And my assumption is there's some young bucks who are ambitious the old man's away. There's a vacuum. We can step in here. We can make a name for ourselves. And so they preach Christ 
but there's politics. Can you believe that? Politics in the pulpit, self-ambition in the pulpit, but it happens. But here's what Paul says. And in the background of that, don't forget, he was kicked around like a political, political football for two years before he said, I need to go to a Caesar and appeal my case. He was shipwrecked on the way. So that's, that's all baked into, you want to know what's happened to me? <laughs> and then he says, but this, go down to verse 18, chapter one. What then? You want to know my response? You want to know my attitude, my mindset? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's a choice. I know what they're up to. They're kingdom building. They're preaching Christ out of self-ambition. I'm in prison. I was shipwrecked. I was kicked around like a political football between Festus and Felix. But here's where I'm choosing. I'm choosing to focus on brothers are bold and even those who are preaching him with the wrong motive are preaching the gospel and that's where I'm going to focus and find my joy. Point. Fundamentally, joy is a habit of the heart. Karl Barth, whose theology we don't share, but he made a true statement when he said this and it's a very excellent insight. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. Love that. And that's what David did. That's what Habakkuk did. That's what Paul did. In the middle of their conversation about life, good or bad, up or down, in or out, there comes a point where they stop the conversation and they say, nevertheless, I will rejoice. What about you? In all your belly aching, complaining, down-in-the-mouth reflections on life. Does there ever come a point where there, there is this defiant nevertheless? Will you transition from your circumstances, your, your feelings, your mood, your relationships, the things that saw life and go, nevertheless, I will rejoice. This is the day He has made. I will rejoice because I have salvation in Jesus Christ. I will rejoice that God is over my life and these things can fall out for the advance of the gospel. Joy is not the, bi is not the product of temperament. Joy is not the outcome of favorable providence. Joy is not the child of emotion. It's an orientation of the heart. It's a forced focus on Christ. It's a defiant nevertheless. It's making your soul happy in Him. In fact, that last phrase comes from the life of George Mueller. You know anything of his life? Great man of God, century or two ago. But a brilliant story, Prussian by birth, comes to England. He's an evangelist, a philanthropist, and, and, and he's known for setting up an orphanage. It's called the um, Ashley Down Orphanage. And he takes the urchins from the working class areas and, 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 and takes care of many of them. In fact, he takes care of 10,000 children across his lifetime. Not only does he have this orphanage, he has 117, or sorry, 100, yeah, 117 schools for poor children that minister to 120,000 kids. 
He was a man of great faith. In fact, he says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. And he trusted God to meet his needs, and God did. Read his life. It's, it's inspiring. How did, he, how did he keep centered? How did he remain calm? How did he be cheerful? I'll let him tell you how he did it. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. How different each day is when the soul is refreshed and made happy early. That's the challenge. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. That's the first order of the day. That's the first business of life. When you swing your legs around to the side of the bed, you got to start the work of making your soul happy in the Lord. Your boss won't do it for you. The circumstances won't help. And typically your emotions take a long time to get on board. It's your job, your business, your responsibility to make your soul happy in the Lord. Got to be in the Word. Got to make sure you get your devotions done before you head out the door because you got to get your mood, your emotions, your mind, your heart, your life moving in the right direction before you enter the traffic of everyday life. That's your responsibility. That's why I'm back to my statement. Generally speaking, you and I are about as happy as we make our minds up to be. We can make our souls happy in the Lord. Let's move on to the connection because this is going to tell us how. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I will say rejoice. So there's the command, rejoice. Here's the connection in the Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord, not in our health, not in our wealth, not in our future plans, not in our spouse, not in our children, not in our accomplishments. We are to rejoice in the person of Jesus Christ. We are to rejoice in the work that he has done on our behalf on the cross and by means of his resurrection. We are to rejoice in the fact that he ever lives to make intercession for us and he's making all grace abound to us in all things and all sufficiency. We are to rejoice that he's coming back because right now he's preparing a home for us in the Father's house and, and he'll return to take us unto himself. We could go on. These are the things we can rejoice in. And that produces the joy. He's the sphere and the source of Christian joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, sometimes sorrowful but always rejoicing. It's possible. Because in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our sadness, we are in the Savior. We are with the Savior. He's with us. We may not be able to rejoice in our loss, but we can rejoice in our Lord. We may not be able to rejoice in our situation, but we can rejoice in our Savior. We may not be able to rejoice in our health. We can rejoice in our high priest. We may not be able to rejoice in our relationships. We can rejoice in our Redeemer. We may not be able to rejoice in our suffering. We can rejoice in our shepherd. You can rejoice in the Lord because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever. That's why it's possible to rejoice always. 
because if your rejoicing is in the Lord and he's always the same and his promises are true and his grace and mercy are unending and his love is unfailing, can't you rejoice always because he's the ground of your rejoicing? He doesn't change. That's why I love the line from an old hymn I learned as a boy. I forget the name of the hymn, but there's a line in it that goes something like this. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. That's a great thing. All may change, but Jesus doesn't change. Glory to his name. And that can put a smile on your face and a spring in your step and a resolve to your will. In the Lord. That's a... Pauline phrase. He loves it. It's, 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 it conveys the union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. The moment you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, we were attached to him, united to him, joined to him, connected to him. And the, and the metaphor is what? The branch to the vine, the wife to the husband, the, the arm to the body. Okay? John 15, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 12. All of those analogies of connection we're in Christ. He's, our, he's the sphere in which we live. He's life to us. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we read to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Don't miss that little phrase. You could read that opening statement and go, okay, that's interesting. It's brilliant. In Christ at Philippi. Two different things. There's a physical location and there's a spiritual position. On a map, they're in Philippi. In life, they're in Philippi. They walk its streets. They go to its factories. They go in and out its supermarkets. That's where they live life. That's where their children are raised. That's where they face heartaches, illness, whatever. At Philippi. That's life. But they're in Christ. At Philippi. They're not by themselves. The greater reality is spiritual, not physical. Amidst all their relationships, they have this one dominating relationship, Jesus Christ. Amidst life, they find life in Him. You get the point? In Christ at Philippi. And then he'll later on say, so rejoice in the Lord. Well, you're going about your business at Philippi, raising your kids, facing trouble, persecution. Live that in Christ. Let me give an analogy I, I, I stole from a preacher it's the analogy of, of uh, you know, you traveling in an airplane at 33,000 feet. June and I just came back from the UK, and on the way back, we took a British Airways flight nonstop, London to LAX, British Airways Airbus 380, my favorite airplane, beautiful aircraft. We're at 33,000 feet cruising most of the time, nine and a half hours. It's 33 degrees below zero outside. This is, this is a bad environment for a human being. It's deadly should you step outside the tube that you're sitting eating your, your potato chips and drinking your Diet Coke in. But you see, we're at 33,000 feet, but we're in an Airbus 380 super jet. And it's freezing outside by my wife's warm. She's got her hoodie on. She's got double blankets and she's curled up fast asleep. I'm watching a movie drinking my Coke and eating my chips. And I might get up, 
stroll around, get the blood going, you know, all of that stuff. You're in that environment, and I'm, the air's clean, and it's warm, and it's comfortable, and I have all that I need to exist. Folks, you need to take that reality. Wherever you are in life, at Elisa Viejo, at Philippi, at Anaheim Hills, you are in Christ. He's the real environment you draw from. It's His grace and His peace and His strength that allows you to exist, not only exist, but to excel, to live victoriously, joyfully, peacefully, hopefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully. Let me make this real and we'll move on. Um, Go to John 15 for a moment. Let's take one of those analogies that, that Jesus talked about. He likens himself to a vine and he likens those who put their trust in him to a branch in the vine. So John 15 verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. You don't need to you know, have green fingers to understand what Jesus is saying. If the vine is healthy and alive and a branch is in the vine and draws sap and life from the vine in that connection, it will bear fruit. I mean, you cut a branch off, it'll look healthy for a day or two and after a while, you'll realize it's a dead branch and it won't bear any fruit. So Jesus' point is, hey, when your life gets attached to my life and you draw your life from my life, you'll begin to live a fruitful, happy, you know, a strong and, and, and victorious life. Scroll down to verse 7. Okay, how do we abide in Jesus? What does that look like? Well, Jesus helps us here. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if you, you and I are to abide in Christ, so we might be fruitful. One of the fruits is joy. How do we abide in Christ? By allowing his word to abide in us, to allow a conversation to take place because the Bible is living and the Holy Spirit uses it to bring the mind and the heart and the revelation of God's purposes to you and me. So you want to abide in Christ? You better have your Bible open quite a bit. And the Bible needs to get into you where you hide it in your heart so that you may not sin against Him, where it becomes a light under your path and a lamp under your feet. You get it. Scroll down to verse 9. Verse 9. Here's another aspect of abiding. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to understand what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. Justification, redemption, propitiation, substitution, imputation. And, we, and as we come to abide in that love, as we come to understand the breadth and the height and the depth of God's love in the gospel of God's Son, we, we abide there, and that, that, that produces worship and motive and resolve and joy. Doesn't Jude say, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy that will yet appear? We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to understand that gospel. We come with an initial understanding, but as soon as, we, all we kind of need to know is, Jesus, God loves me, and Jesus died for me, and his, his death took my place and my punishment, we get there. That gets us over the door. 
But when you're on the other side of that, then you get into the epistles and you start reading about how you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and how Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and God has adopted you and imputed Christ's righteousness to you and his blood cleanses you from all sin. And, and this, this knowledge expands and, and you begin to realize the enormity of it. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You I mean, you can't say that without a smile. It's wonderful. And that's why we've got verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that, you, that my joy may be in you or remain in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is the byproduct of abiding in Christ, of pursuing the connection in the light of the command. Let me illustrate this and we'll move on. I love the writings of J. B. George B. Duncan. He was a pastor at the Tron Presbyterian Church in Scotland for many years, followed by Eric Alexander and Sinclair Ferguson. Well, he tells the story of a lady who went to Devon, England on a vacation. She's sitting at the windowsill of her B&B, &B, the window's half up. There's a nice sea breeze and she's enjoying it. And all of a sudden there's this pungent smell. It's beautiful. It's fragrant. It's almost like perfume. And she's wondering where it's coming from. She looks out and she's got no explanation. Just the street below, people are walking in all kinds of directions. And so she goes downstairs, talks to her hostess. They go outside the door and the smell is even more pungent. And the hostess explains, you want to know what that smell's coming from? You see all the people walking by you, they've just been let out of the perfume factory. It's lunchtime. And because they, they live in that environment where they, they make the perfume, the fragrance, the smell clings to their clothes and they take it wherever they go. See, when you live in a factory that makes perfume and that aroma and that smell is everywhere, you're going to carry it. You're a carrier of the perfume. That's Paul's point. Man, if you're in Christ, you're a Christ carrier. You're going to be marked by joy and peace and love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens when you spend your life abiding in Christ, His Word in you, and you abide in His love. Amen? Here's the last thought, the constancy. The constancy. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. Now that... That's possible because remember, we're not talking about making rhyme with some fake smile. We're not talking about denying the heartache of cancer, bankruptcy, failed relationships, the horror of persecution against God's people. That's not what we're talking about. See, our joy, remember, is a deep thing. It works its way out. If it can't get to a smile, Certainly the heart will be at peace and the soul will rejoice in solid realities that the, being anchored to the fact that nothing will separate me from the love of God. That produces a joy even in the midst of sorrow where you can't express that fully. That's why Paul says, sometimes sorrowful but always rejoicing. Those are two different, um, in, in one way, emotions or, or dispositions, but they can live together. So I'm not talking about being joyful always, where, you know, you come bouncing into a conversation here at a Bible study. Hey, everybody, come on, you, you sicken me, shut up. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something real, authentic, 
that can exist in every situation at all times. It can be constant. It is not a seasonal fruit. It can be unmitigated. Because remember, it's more than happiness. See, the world defines happiness in terms of happenings. I'm happy because I got a boyfriend. I'm happy because I got a sports car. I'm happy because our team won the football game. You, you get it. Well, where does your happiness go when those things go? Well, it takes flight because your happiness is outward. Your happiness is tied to things you can't rely on. That's not Christian happiness. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord and the Lord's not going anywhere. Amen? And His love and His mercy is unfailing and you every morning are His mercies and great is His faithfulness. So I've got somewhere to go and something to be happy about all the time. And that's why as I thought about it, three things jumped out at me when I started thinking a little bit about um, the things that are, are true of the Christian all the time. What, what, what's, what's fixed and firm? You know, all may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. So I thought about three things. Jesus' salvation, Jesus' so sovereignty, and Jesus' sufficiency. I'm going to root those all in the book of Philippians. Because Paul's telling these Philippians to rejoice all the time. Have they got reason? Yes, they've got many reasons. I'm going to give you three. Number one, the constancy of Jesus' salvation. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord. But back up, look how verse three ends. And remember, this is a train of thought. Paul acknowledges regarding Christians that their names are in the book of life. That's something to be happy about. That's something that should produce joy. Because the book of life is the registrar in heaven where the names of the elect and the redeemed have been written down in the blood of Jesus Christ. That God is going to love us forever. And nothing can thwart his saving purposes in our life. That's why Paul begins Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm confident that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes and we're saved to sin no more. He has saved you. He is saving you. He will save you. And you can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved. That's something to rejoice in. There's a security in that, that nothing will separate me from his love. His saving intentions in my life can never be thwarted. Neither devils or demons, life or death, can sever that relationship. I am his and his forever. Folks, that's phenomenal. That's a word to the widow. That's a word to the divorcee. That's a word to the single person. That's a word to us all. This is a relationship that can't be severed, broken, disconnected, ended. You've got a similar thought, don't you? Over in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, if I might go there quickly for you, just listen, let the words 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you. Anybody excited yet? Living hopes? Heaven? Heritage? Inheritances that last forever? This is the Christian's possessions in Jesus Christ, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little season, if necessary, you endure various trials. Where are you going to rejoice? Where do you go in the midst of trials? when the props are all knocked out from under you, where do you go? You go to your salvation. You go to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You go to the fact, you know what? He's, he, he's preparing a home for us. We, we have a 401k in heaven. It's just out of this world. We're going to be kept by the power of God. It's good stuff. Go down that list. You know, what? why are you moping? Why are you murmuring? What's with the big long face? What's with the drooping soul? This is a constant. Where's the nevertheless of defiant joy? Little word study. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S is the Greek word for grace. Grace is a word that means delightful or favor. What is God's grace? It's his favor, undeserved, toward us in Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life without works, simply by faith. Another word, it's a kissing cousin, kara, C-H-A-R-A. It's the Greek word, very like charis. They're part of the same family. You know what that word is in the Greek? Joy. I got a thesis for you. The man or woman who experiences the grace of God, charis, will express the joy that's found in Jesus Christ, kara. If you experience charis, you've got to express kara. If your name is in the book of life, you should rejoice always. If you have an inheritance that doesn't fade away, in that you should rejoice. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was um, set aside because of illness he was no longer preaching. This was a man who had exercised a worldwide ministry, and so he was visited by a friend towards the end of his life who anticipated, that's got to be hard. You know, bandridden, housebound. You're not preaching anymore. So he said, doctor, how are you doing with this? To which Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones replied in the words of Jesus, Luke 10, verse 20, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what Jesus said to his disciples one day. Hey guys, that's great. I love to hear about the accusisms. I love the fact that we're pushing the darkness back. But you know what? That's going to come and go. You're gonna be, that's going to be up and down some days. Here's where you need to fix your joy. It's in the fixed reality that your names are written in the book of heaven. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier in his life made this statement, don't let your happiness depend on preaching for the day will come when you will no longer preach. Find your happiness in God who will be with you to the end. Number two, we've not only got the constancy of Jesus' salvation, we've got the constancy of Jesus' sovereignty. 
Not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm just go back in your mind to the passage we looked at, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Two years kicked about like a political prisoner and a football, shipwrecked, imprisoned in Rome. The good is some people are getting saved in Caesar's household. The good is some brethren are being bold. The bad is, in Paul's absence, some people are acting out of self-ambition. But he says, I rejoice nevertheless because these things have fallen out for gospel advancement. Implication? God's working all things together for good. It's not written there, but that's a Romans 8.28 passage. You want to know how I'm doing? Epaphroditus will tell you, I'm doing really good. Because these things are opening doors for the gospel. The word advanced there is a military term. It spoke of, of, of uh, troops that would break through, spearhead battalions that would allow their troops to come up behind them into places they'd never been before. And Paul's saying, hey, I didn't like the two years of becoming a political pawn. I didn't like the shipwreck. I didn't like this imprisonment. But God is sovereign and that's where my rejoicing is, that he can take all this stuff. He can, he can make something of my circumstances. Uh, I've got to look beyond the, 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 what my eye sees and live by faith and know that God's doing something with this thing that I don't particularly like. You know the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of providence. Does that not produce joy? To know in the midst of the chaos there is order, even if you don't see it. Uh, let me see if I can squeeze this in because time's going. Max Lucado in his book on anxiety, um, it's entitled Anxious for Nothing. This was a helpful insight. He says this, in the treatment of anxiety, a proper understanding of sovereignty is huge. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. I think that's the first statement. You and I lose our joy and we become anxious when we look out on life and it seems like it's all chaotic. Nothing's meshing. Nothing's working. It's all falling apart. Now he goes on to give a study done by psychologists during the Second World War or after it. And the infantryman had high levels of stress. In fact, the psychologists tell us that after 60 days of continuous combat on the ground, Infantry men became emotionally dead. They just lived in this state, I'm going to die pretty soon. They became emotionally dead because they lived under a barrage of shelling, bullets, booby traps, snipers. Took a big toll on them emotionally. But here's what was interesting. The comparative calm of fighter pilots. In fact, their, their, their mortality rate was 50%. Whether they lived or died was a toss of a coin. And yet, they seemed to have a greater calm about them that was surprising. And, and what, they, what they determined was this, that the fighter pilots had a sense of control. They were in charge of the airplane. They were in charge of the dogfight or the bombing run. And, and to some degree, having their hands on the controls, while they're a presumption or not, give them a sense, my fate and my future's in my hands. The infantryman, he's a pawn. He's fodder. 
He's got no control and the perceived chaos scares him to death. And, and this is what Max Licato says in the light of that. The formula is simple. Perceived control creates calm. Lack of control creates fear. And he says that's where the doctrine of God's sovereignty comes in because if we believe it, we will never perceive anything in our lives to be in a state of chaos because it's going somewhere and it will work together for good. To get a last thought in here, Jesus' sufficiency. How can you rejoice always? Because your names are written down in the book of life. And God's advancing his purpose in your life regardless of the circumstances. And thirdly, regardless of the circumstances, you have enough sufficiency on the inside to deal with whatever's going on on the outside. That's Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I've learned, regardless of my circumstances, good or bad, up or down, whether I'm hungry or full, whether I'm rich or poor, Paul says, I've learned to be content. Now, the word content in the Greek is sufficient. Paul is saying, I've learned that I have a sufficiency. Now, you would know that's not humanism. That's not stoicism. Paul's not saying, I can do it. I can do it. Because he'll say in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who pours his strength into me. So Paul's saying this, I have within me through the indwelling spirit of God and his presence and his power, I have available to me all the grace necessary to be victorious, to remain joyful and be at peace in my circumstances. Christ can produce that in me. As I abide in him, his word abides in me. I abide in his love, his joy remains. I can be content. In fact, Wearsby says you could translate the word contentment, containment. I have learned to be contained. I've learned that I have within me the grace necessary to deal with what's going on around me. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, folks, isn't it? Or 9 verse 8. He makes all grace abound to us in all things, in all sufficiency. And if that's true, and it is, it's from the Word, can't I rejoice always? Even in the midst of things that are rough and tough, Remember, we're not talking about blind optimism. We're talking about some plastic smile that becomes irritating actually after a while. We're talking about a solid joy that comes through a connection with Jesus Christ that affords to us salvation, sovereignty, and sufficiency. As the team gets ready to come up, 1749, America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, makes a bold move. He decides that no one is going to come to the Lord's table unless they can give evidence of true conversion. Now, that seems a given to a good church like Compass and Kindred. But in that day, that was radical. No one gets to take to the Lord's table unless you're a Christian. So it starts trouble and division in his church and many are up in arms. Families are turning against him and there's a conspiracy afoot to get him kicked in the touch. That all comes to a head. 1750, there's a council that convenes and, and, and it looks into this issue and in the church votes. And the church votes 230 members to dismiss their pastor, 29 against. They want him to stay. And America's greatest theologian is kicked out of his church. 
Now, someone has observed the whole week's goings on and they've observed his reactions. Here's what they said. I love this. And with this, we're done. That faithful witness, speaking of Jonathan Edwards, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance, his face, the whole week. He appeared like a man of God whose happiness was beyond the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good. Is that not challenging? And is that not what we ought to strive for? To express and experience a joy in Jesus that's beyond the reach of our enemies, our emotions, our circumstances, our relationships. Because all may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. I trust this week as you live this out and talk it through, that God will allow you to be such a cheerful witness for him. Like that woman in New York, others will be tempted to become a Christian because a Christian is a walking hallelujah. A Christian is singularly happy and a cheerful spirit in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for our time in your word, may it abide in us as we abide in you so that your joy in us and may remain. Help us to do the hard work of making our souls happy in the Lord. So easy to surrender to our emotions, to our, our, our minds, the world's mindset, to our circumstances that may be negative. Help us to rise above our circumstances. Help us to move beyond our emotions and bring our mind and our heart and our souls to bear upon gospel truths, to, to, to develop our relationship with you, to come to understand that our names are written in the book of life, that you've got every day of our life in your hands, that, that we have grace that's sufficient for all the challenges that you send our way. Lord, make us happy. In fact, Lord, give us the grace to make ourselves happy in you. And first, if someone's here today doesn't know that joy, is sad because of their sin, their loneliness, their sense that life has no purpose, may they come to see the joy that can be found in the God who gives purpose and the, the Lord Jesus who forgives that sin and brings a joy and a peace and a love to life that can't be found anywhere else in anyone else. For we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.